Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me this week is our wonderful producer, Stephen Trader. Hey, Stephen. How's it going? Hello, Natalie. It's going great. It's a beautiful, sunny spring day where I'm at. And in a shocking turn of events, the Supreme Court released all its opinions this week, and they're just... (laughs) They're all done, and they're going to take the rest of the spring off. Is this like two truths and a lie? Like, is it sunny (laughs) by you? Like, for real? Because they most certainly did not release their opinions. It is sunny. It is a nice day. You're absolutely right. Zero opinions, Natalie. (laughs) Zero opinions. Which I guess, you know, I, I think makes sense. They just finished oral arguments last week. Whenever you finish, like, one big project, at least for me... I usually like to take like one week break just to, you know, mentally refresh before they get to writing. So I suppose I won't hold it against them, but these are really starting I will. to stack up. They, yeah. I, will, I will hold it against them. They have a lot of opinions to get through over the next like two months. So they sure I, do. I hope they get to writing soon. Um, but with that said, despite no opinions, there was actually a little bit of news here, um, both at the court and around the court. Uh, Stephen, I know you have our our kind of first topic at hand, which is there was a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing on Supreme Court ethics on Wednesday. Yes, there was. We're heading across the street over to Capitol Hill. And uh, basically, this hearing was um, a a discussion that included um, expert testimony on whether Congress should force the Supreme Court to adopt a formal code of conduct what that would look like, and whether Congress is even allowed to do so. Uh, This is the hearing that Chief Justice John Roberts turned down last week, citing separation of powers. And right out of the gate, the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Senator Dick Durbin, was pretty quickly critical of that decision. I want to read a quote from him. The reality is that a sitting justices has testified at 92 congressional hearings since 1960. But I'm more troubled by the suggestion that testifying before this committee would somehow infringe on the separation of powers. In fact, answering questions from the people's elected representatives is one of the checks and balances that helps preserve the separation of powers. Strong words for uh, the justice uh, RSVPing no to them. That's right. Um, Durbin was also quick to mention that this was not a partisan issue. He said that he's been trying to talk to the chief justice about ethics concerns since back in the Obama administration. But let's be honest, Natalie, this is a pretty partisan hearing. Uh, Ranking member Lindsey Graham said Congress was trying to take over the court, called it selective outrage. He called it an assault on Justice Clarence Thomas that goes well beyond ethics. And there was also a lot of callbacks by Republicans to comments that uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer made back in 2020. I totally forgot that this happened. Um, It was at an abortion rights rally on the steps of the Supreme Court when he called out Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh and said, you've released the whirlwind and you will pay the price. Do you remember when that happened? I do. I do remember that. I'd forgotten about it just like you, though. But that was like that was huge news that day because it was really seen as like crossing a very like distinct line in, in to be calling out the justices by name like that, by, you know, to have a lawmaker call out the justices by name like that. Yeah, Senate Republicans certainly did not forget about that. So they really use that kind of as a jumping off point to paint this picture of a Democratic hearing that's out for blood and trying to delegitimize a conservative court. 
Okay, so it sounds like just a pretty tense hearing right out of the gate. But I know that there were also witnesses um, talking like this wasn't just the kind of lawmakers shouting (laughs) at each other. Uh, What did the witnesses have to say? Right. There was five legal experts as a mix of professors, attorneys and former judges. Uh, The Democratic majority called three witnesses. The Republicans called two. And the majority's witnesses, you know, as you can imagine, they generally agreed that Congress has in the past possessed the authority to legislate if the court would not adopt a code of ethics on its own. Amanda Frost, uh, she's a constitutional law professor at the University of Virginia School of Law, and she in particular made the argument that the Constitution leaves to Congress the role of administering the court. She pointed to the Judiciary Act of 1789 and several statutes in the century since then, which I guess makes sense. You know, the, the, the Supreme Court hasn't always been this exact iteration. It's changed throughout the years, and Congress has been a part of that. You know, they used to ride circuit. Congress can change the number of justices if they want to. Um, so here's a quote from her. To question that authority today is to question 230 years of consistent practice where Congress has legislated regarding the court. To be clear, not to control its decisions, that is clearly off limits. But every other aspect of the court is controlled by Congress, from its size to when it meets. Well, we know that um, calls to change the number of the justices of the court have uh, been very hotly debated in the last few months. Um, I, I understand what she's saying. It sounds all fine and reasonable. But, you know, in practice, there's like very tense feelings about this. Um, what did Republican experts say? Generally speaking, they were against congressional oversight, as you can imagine. Uh, they said that that would run afoul of separation of powers and would lead to confusion and partisan gamesmanship. Thomas Dupree is a co-chair of the Appellate and Constitutional Law Practice Group at Gibson Dunn, and he was pretty strong in his opening statement. He focused on some of the proposed legislation that would create a code of conduct and ideas of like creating oversight panels of either lower court judges or a particular officer at the court. He said proposed legislation like this seems to indicate the idea that the Supreme Court is no different than, say, like the Department of Agriculture or any other federal agency that can be commanded by Congress to engage in rulemaking. And that's just not how the Constitution was written. He also singled out one particular proposal that would allow third parties to challenge potential conflicts of interest. So here's a quote from him. If that provision were to become law, I promise you, as someone who litigates regularly in the United States Supreme Court, Round one of any litigation would be to try and knock out the justices who you think might be opposed to you. That's untenable. So pretty strong words there. And you can also see how that's true. So, you know, some good points. Like you can, you know, with any rule that like is new, you're going to have people who try to maybe not stick to the intention of that rule. Right. Um, So I, I, I get what he's saying. So anything else that that interesting came out of this hearing? Well, I think that just about covers it for the hearing. Um, But we did have some news on Thursday morning. A couple of different news items. We'll start with one that was reported by The Hill. And that's that um, 15 Democrats had signed a letter to the House subcommittee that controls the Supreme Court's budget. And they would like to add some language to the next appropriations bill basically cutting out some funding until the court adopts some formal ethics rules. 
And as you can imagine, Natalie, Republicans did not react very well to that. <laughs> and that's a very strong proposal. Um, they noted that uh, cutting out a proposed $10 million is oddly specific in that that's how much it costs to provide security protection for the justices. So that's a whole mess. Uh, but the power of the purse seems to be something that Democrats are exploring, which is pretty remarkable, I think. I'm sorry, that that I I don't think is going to play well at all. Like you you've seen judges have death threats and real like threats against them in recent years. I think it was just like last year that someone like made it onto Justice Kavanaugh's like land, like his backyard or front yard. And, you know, this that's serious business. I I just I don't see that playing well at all. Right. And I and and. Democrats have pointed out, as they did in the hearing, that when it comes to, um, you know, sec the security of the justices, you, they certainly don't want to touch that. I mean, I, I think it's a partisan politics playing out when they're discussing something like that. So I don't know if that's where the money is necessarily coming from. But of course, one side or the other is going gonna, is gonna to run with these things. So, um, yeah, a, a real political football that's being tossed around. But some perhaps even bigger news than more news that broke on Thursday was another ProPublica report relating to Justice Thomas, who kind of kicked this whole thing off with um, these trips that were being paid for by a billionaire friend of his down in Texas, Harlan Crow. So the latest news from that and from ProPublica is that so Justice Thomas and his wife are legal caretakers of his grandnephew. And his grandnephew was enrolled in two different private schools, one in Georgia and one in Virginia. And Harlan Crow allegedly paid that tuition. So at least one of the school's tuition was $6,000 a month. And Justice Thomas didn't report that. Uh, justices must report gifts to their spouses and dependent children. And that's kind of a murky area, whether the ethics rules would apply to this situation, because Justice Thomas is his legal guardian, but not his parent. But I mean, that's that's really splitting some hairs here. And obviously, these things are piling up in a way that's very remarkable. I, I mean, look, just as you said, splitting hairs, like if that is a dependent of yours, I think that I'm not in charge of, like, obviously interpreting the rules here, but I would say that is something you need to disclose. Like, that seems fair. Um, yeah, there's, there, there's been other times where disclosures like that, like gifts to a child, have been made by people in this situation, including Justice Thomas. He has disclosed that in the past for, like, so, somebody providing a gift to his grandnephew. Why he didn't do that here... Uh, is kind of an unanswered question right now. Um, I don't know what's going to come of this, but it seems like a very untenable situation as these disclosures it, keep happening. Well, it feels like a drip, drip, drip of like, yeah. you know, questions and somewhat scandals happening here that just seems to be feeding, of course, further debate over whether they should have a formalized code of ethics or a more formalized code of ethics. Stephen, thank you for breaking that one down for us. Um, definitely one I think we'll be talking about through the end of the term, uh, honestly. <laughs> right. So we mentioned up top, no opinions this week. But Natalie, we did have some orders. I mean, at least they're they're starting to 
stock their their docket up for next term so um they are and next term is shaping up to be another like doozy i have to say um and in particular this week on monday the justices took up a case that is squarely aimed at overturning their landmark 1984 decision chevron versus natural resources defense council this was the case that set the precedent where judges have to defer to executive agencies when statutes are ambiguous and really gave a great deal of power to federal agencies to set rules and shape the kind of gray areas that are often created by legislation. Um, this case is seeking to upend Chevron, and many folks are thinking it has a good chance of succeeding. The question that the court took up explicitly asks whether the court should overrule Chevron or at least clarify the statutory silence concerning controversial powers expressed elsewhere in a statute don't constitute an ambiguity that requires deference to the agency. We love a good conversation about Chevron deference, and we have been having them quite a bit recently as it is, what do you want to say, um, not so popular with some of the justices, but no, I'm, not I'm, popular. <laughs> I, I, I'm I'm very curious though. What's the case that finally kind of brought this issue squarely before the court? Well, actually, I I won't say finally because as I'll talk about later, there have been other cases that have been raised and Chevron's escaped kind of the scalpel <laughs> and or the hacksaw. <laughs> um, but this one, this one. Folks are kind of really looking at it as a potential for for really doing some damage to Chevron deference. Um, the case is Loper Bright Enterprises versus Raimundo. It involves New Jersey fishers, herring fishers to be precise, who sued the National Marine Fisheries Service. They say that the fisheries service, the NMFS, lacks the authority to make them pay part of the cost to have monitors aboard their ships to ensure compliance with federal re- regulations. So like... These fishers are required to pay like 20% of the monitor salaries or something like that. Um, In the D.C. Circuit, the fishers lost with the court deferring to the agency's interpretation of their governing statute, the Magnuson-Stevens Act. The Magnuson-Stevens Act is the one that requires vessel owners to make room on board for federal observers, but it doesn't explicitly state that vessel owners have to pay their salaries. So there, there's that gray area, right? Mm -hmm. That Chevron really plays a key role in. The Fishers, who are being represented by noted Supreme Court advocate Paul Clement, want the court to put a stop to agencies passing the buck on enforcement of what they believe is overregulation. Like, they don't think they should be having to pay for what they seem as overregulation. The agency, NMFS, has argued the Fishers have not shown their burden by this monitoring services. And they noted that other regulations um, that they have require fishing vessels to pay for like third-party services, such as electronic catch reporting, specific equipment, safety checks, etc. So as you mentioned before, Chevron does occasionally make an appearance at the Supreme Court where where they discuss how far it should go. Um, It doesn't always get a ton of love, right? No. Um, The court, particularly the conservative side of the bench, has really started to come down on the president, and they've been taking closer looks at it. Just last year, we had another big case that really questioned Chevron and was being eyeballed as like potentially like one to do damage to the president. It was about a disputed reading of the Medicare Act. Now, Chevron survived that 
the court made a narrow ruling that essentially avoided them weighing in on Chevron. But, you know, we've seen Chevron come up and, uh, you know, related uh, uh, judicial philosophies related to Chevron. Um, in 2019, the court took aim at our deference or what our former beloved co-host Jimmy Hoover called Chevron's judicial cousin. Um, that's where, you know, courts defer to an agency's interpretation of its own rule unless it's like plainly erroneous. That took a major hit um, in 2019. Justices Thomas, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh, they've all been fairly vocal at one time or another about their dismay with Chevron. In 2015, in a case involving the EPA, Justice Thomas said plainly that there are serious questions about the constitutionality of the doctrine. Justice Gorsuch, when he was on the Tenth Circuit, wrote that maybe it's, quote, unquote, the time has come to face the behemoth. Side note. Anne Gorsuch, the mother of Justice Gorsuch, was involved in the suit against the APA that led to Chevron. Um, the justices and other judges uh, across the uh, across the country have argued that Chevron goes too far, that it gives unfair power to agencies, and also ties the hands of judges from fulfilling their responsibility to interpret the law. Additionally, when Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed, there was quite a bit of discussion about Maybe Chevron's time was limited because documents that she disclosed to the Senate Judiciary Committee, including a syllabus for a class she taught at Notre Dame Law School, suggests that she's receptive to attacks on it. So all this kind of comes together as not looking real good for Chevron in this particular case. Yeah, it feels like this one could really come down to uh, Chief Justice Roberts and uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett on on what side what side they'll fall and. Chevron's just always so fascinating to me. And that discussion about, you know, these agencies who employ hundreds of people, many of them experts, they're looking at these things and they're really like the boots on the ground. And so they're interpreting it one way. And if you kind of take that away and then it falls just to the courts and do they have the expertise and the bandwidth to be able to answer these questions or like interpret these statutes that are ambiguous? I mean, I think it's like a really fascinating debate. And, you know, like how the court decides this is really going to shape how the judiciary really starts to, you know, handle these situations. So I, I'm anxious to to keep an eye on that one. Likewise. And I, that's definitely one that I'll be watching next term. Um, I think, you know, I, I said this last week about another case, but it, like top three or five of cases to watch for next next term. Yeah, they're really adding some blockbusters on there. Yeah. Um, So I think that does it for us today, Stephen, Um, at least about news from the court. Uh, Before we, you know, completely sign out, though, I did want to mention, actually, you know, the justice who wrote the opinion for Chevron was the late Justice John Paul Stevens. Um, And this week, a batch of his papers from actually 1984, when Chevron was decided to 2005, were made available to research for the first time. And this is like really actually super interesting news for Supreme Court observers and, you know, nerds <laughs> like us, because it's it's really the first time that any justice's papers from that time period uh, have been released. Um, you know, this kind of gives a first behind the scenes look to what might have been going on at the high court in 1991 when Justice Thurgood Marshall retired. 
Obviously, also, Justice Stevens was uh, a part of some major cases, Chevron being one of them, but also Bush v. Gore, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, the list goes on and on. Um, so these are made available for research at the first time at the Library of Congress. And I think it's 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 it's, it's kind of ironic timing with the, the, the Chevron case being taken up um, the same week. But I'm, I'm curious to see if there's any um, paperwork related to, to that case in particular to look through. Yeah, I don't know, Natalie. Um, that's kind of tempting. I mean, even when the weather is nice outside, maybe I just curl up with some some good, uh, you know, personal papers and notes and effects <laughs> from uh, Justice John Paul Stevens and uh, and read into the backstory of that. That that's super interesting, though. And um, of course, obviously, uh, always nice to have like a peek inside their thinking process. So that's pretty cool. Well, I think that does it for us. Uh, hopefully, we'll be back next week with some opinions. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. It can't can't guarantee anything, but uh, it's been a pleasure talking about the court with you, Natalie. Thank you. Thanks, Stephen. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. We'd also like to thank reporters, uh, James Arkin, Jess Koshtangle, Juan Carlos Rodriguez, and Jeff Overly. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere listen to podcasts. Just search law360 in the term. And oh, if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a review. 